Hello, I'm Dave and I'm the guy that puts this stuff together and this week I haven't really had time to edit a normal conversation like it takes quite a long time to edit a conversation even though it sounds hopefully as if they're hardly edited at all. This week I didn't have that time, I'm not in the right place, I don't have my laptop with me and so I have instead thrown some things together that I've recorded on various stages during this year so far. So today's episode is getting better acquainted with me and it's me on the Spark London stage, on the Arts Emergency stage and on the Stand Up Tragedy stage, talking mostly about myself but as the show goes on also more and more about tragedy, about trauma and about looking at the hard things. So you should be aware that in this episode you will hear stuff about being bullied, about having a traumatic time in my childhood, in at home, about the criminal justice system, about death and sadness and all sorts of things like that, but hopefully told in an engaging and thought-provoking way. I need to get better, please make me better, I want to get better. Better, better acquainted with you. So I'm going to tell you my origin story today. So when I was three years old, I moved to a small village in North Wales. Um, when I'm saying small village, just to give you an idea, uh, it was a row of about six or seven cottages and a pub and a car park for the pub, and uh, a, a post office, and then there was a few bungalows over the big main road, but you didn't really go over the main road. So that's how small it was. It was a tiny, small part of the countryside where I, I did take root and, and, grow, and grow from this, this seed in all directions, really. It was amazing to, to be in the countryside, and it's really my first memories are of that countryside. And, uh, you know, it, the big thing to do in the village was to, to walk up, up, the, uh, up the hill towards the telegraph pole, uh, and uh, then you'd walk up the hill and there would be wild strawberries, wild raspberries, black currants, all the way up, you know, you would be eating, and then you would get to the telegraph pole and then behind that there was like the 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 hill that had had uh like heather that you could roll down and it was a very very beautific place now uh because it was a small village there was no school in it the school that we could go to from that village was up a different hill uh in the town of Kerois, which at the time was the smallest uh town in europe um, but since subsequently, it's, there's, a, there's other smaller towns in, this, in Central Europe now. Uh, but at the time, it was the smallest town in Europe. And everybody in the village to get up to the school uh, would, would basically get a taxi. That's how, that's how small it was. The taxi was put on by, I guess, by the local authority and it would come round all of the different houses. You could tell that the population grew actually during our time there because after a while it became a minibus. It was a small town in North Wales where I went to school. And when I was about, I guess, six or seven, 
I went to school, as I normally would, in the taxi with the rest of the village. And we went up and we were told to go and go into the, uh, the assembly room, which was smaller than this room, like small, almost smaller than this stage, uh, where, we, where we would normally have our school assemblies. And I walked in from this life I was living as a, as, as a small child in the countryside into this room to find a, a teepee set up in the middle of that room. And there was a Native American uh, tied to that teepee, sort of sitting, sitting down by the teepee. And there was a cowgirl talking to us. And this blew my mind, obviously, because what the fuck? Um, and, and I didn't really, I know, so I, I was a child, so this, was, this wasn't fiction to me in any way. This was real, this was really happening. The cowgirl then uh, spent some time telling all of the children about uh, the Wild West. And her narrative of that Wild West was very glorious and how amazing it was. And all of the time, there was this kind of subplot of this Native American sort of the spectre in the room, the elephant in the room, sitting there by the teepee uh, and, and, and being mistreated consistently by her. And after she finished her, her, her monologue... She dropped some food on the floor too far for the the Native American to reach and left the room. And all the children were very confused. Like, what did we do? We'd sort of seen this mean thing happen. And you're not supposed to be mean. But, you know, adults, it was an adult that told us to sort of like not feed the Native American. And so, obviously, we were using politically incorrect terms in those days. But, um, But, yes, so... I sort of sat there and I looked at the Native American and I looked at the food and I saw an injustice and I stood up and I got that food and I gave that to the Native American. At which point the cowgirl came in and it was like, this was the whole message. Uh, This is what we wanted somebody to do. Um, But for me, that had not been a message. That had been a genuine act of, 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 of standing up and taking some responsibility with absolute expectation I was going to get in trouble for it and that day in that small Welsh town that theatre company sowed these seeds into me that have lasted you know from then onwards it was it 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 taught me like it told me that theatre and that words and ideas and creative things could change people's understanding like maybe just one or a small village of, of children but still it could change our understanding and it changed our understanding of history it changed our understanding of empathy um, and it was just a moment when I started to grow towards making creative things true storytelling I guess was planted there in me there and also political stuff like the sense of we can change things we can try to change things and we should try to change things even if it doesn't seem like it's going to make a difference. And so that was my origin story. There we go. That was recorded at the Hackney Attic at the night that I run for Spark London. It's an open mic. It happens on the second Monday of every month. I tend to tell the first story just to show that anybody can do it, which is hard because it means I have to keep on thinking of new stories to tell from my life. 
The next one coming up is a special edition where we're teaming up for the second year with Mind in Haringey and putting on a night of stories called Multicultural Minds, where people will be sharing their experiences of mental health from different cultural positions. Next up, we have another story that I recorded for Spark London, this time at a night that we put on at the Exmouth Market Theatre on the last Thursday of every month. You can find out more about Spark at stories.co.uk because Spark is not just for London now. We have branches all over the UK and we're continuing to grow. So find out more about us over there. The theme of the night was infectious. And this was told at the open mic section of that night, which was a fundraiser for the organisation Body and Soul. And the reason that everybody is laughing at the beginning of this piece is that I was hosting the open mic section and I was bringing myself up to the stage. So I went into the classroom (laughs) and this boy says to me, you look like a Melvin, right? Now, I didn't know what that meant. It doesn't really mean anything. Basically, he just thought like I looked like a Melvin, but that annoyed me because I don't know what that means. And so I reacted to this kind of innocent-ish kind of teasingness uh, by getting really stressed out and upset. Like, no, I don't. Why, why are you saying I look like a Melvin? Why are you saying that? And because I reacted that way, he kept calling me Melvin. And the rest of the class started calling me Melvin. And in the end, all of the class were kind of jeering and cheering Melvin at me as I kind of freaked out. Now, Before I'd got into that classroom, a lot of things had happened to me in my life. I was about 13 years old, and I'd moved from Coventry in the Midlands to Cardiff. Uh, And so I was an English boy in Cardiff, and I had an English accent, which marked me out as different. Apart from that, as I also sort of liked reading books, I I performed well academically at school, and, uh, you know, uh, I had an exciting range of acne across my face. And so... I found I was in this kind of category of swat, geek, and nerd. And I didn't know what that was. And then suddenly, I was in this room, and I got this new category of Melvin. And everybody was calling me Melvin, and it didn't just stick in that classroom. It went viral. Suddenly... The whole school was calling me Melvin. Everywhere I went, I would be called Melvin. I would walk down the corridors and people would shout, Melvin, Melvin, at me. Um, It wasn't just uh, with words. They they spat at me, they kicked me and hit me and stuff like that as I walked down the corridors. I became Melvin. Everyone called me Melvin from like the littlest kids to the biggest kids. That's what happened to me. And that's where everywhere I went, that was who I was. And that was something that, you know, caused me a lot of upset and and made me feel very very bad and very alienated and they didn't just stop with the word Melvin they found other exciting words to use kind of homophobic slurs and kind of calling me a woman and stuff like that and uh, you know I started to feel very alienated and not really part of the school I didn't really have any friends and it wasn't a very enjoyable time for me um, but, and, but then as school went on, I did kind of find friends. I found friends in the year above me. Uh, I found friends because I went to drama and I, I, I did stuff on stage and then people sort of like got to know who I was. And, uh, this, but it carried on and it carried on and the sort of climax for me uh, for it was uh, that I was in the Eisteddfod, which is like a kind of uh, competition talent show for the school, and I was doing um, a vocal song, and I decided to do Stop Whispering, Start Shouting by Radiohead, a cappella, a cappella. 
So, like, I got up, like, this was my, me trying to tell them all to stop calling me Melvin, I guess. And I sort of stood up and I sort of went, and the wise man said, I don't want to hear your voice. And, like, everyone starts laughing and, like, jeering and shouting uh, Melvin at me, calling me gay, like the whole assembly room doing that. And I just carried on the song anyway, right? And it didn't have that big effect that I'd hoped for. But I carried on the song and I walked off that stage. I walked out of that room. My friends came and they formed, like, a path behind me and they walked out that, that room and we walked out of the school and we walked right out of the building. It's the middle of the day. I should have stayed in the school, but I didn't uh, do that. I walked out of the school and I walked out of that gate and I knew that since I was out of that gate, at least with my friends, they couldn't help hurt me anymore. And Melvin went on. I went into sixth form and I had this kind of big dramatic moment again. I tried to do a dramatic moment at sixth, sixth form induction weekend where I shouted at everybody in the middle of the night in their tents uh, to stop calling me Melvin and that I wanted to be Dave. Dave was my name. And I thought that didn't work, but it did. Everyone in the sixth form did start calling me Dave, and my friends were calling me Dave, and I had this new identity. I'd reclaimed my name back. I was no longer Melvin. I was Dave. But the thing was, when I walked out of that school, when I left that school in the sixth form and I went to university, I thought that I was still Melvin. I thought that I was still low down in the hierarchy of society, that I was an outcast, but it wasn't true. Pretty much as soon as I left for university, all of my straight, white, male privilege came flowing right back to me. And I, I wasn't somebody who was an outcast. I was the top of the fucking heap. Uh, against my liking, I don't approve of that. But it took years to learn that. To, to learn that I wasn't someone who was still bullied. And to learn that I had to change my behavior and be aware that I had power because I didn't have power when I was a child. And being aware of that and knowing that is going to be a lifelong journey. But it's really important to learn, because it's exactly that kind of thing that makes people treat people like they're less than them. And that is my story. And I told that story when i just come back from Edinburgh, and... I was addressing lots of the topics and the even the events, the story that, that I cover in my solo show, but it was great to have an opportunity to frame it in a different way to a different audience of people. The audience had a lot of young people in that night, and so it was a good story, I felt, to tell. So the next story was also told at Exmouth Market Theatre, also in an open mic at a Spark London night. The theme of this night was crime and punishment. So crime and punishment are quite simplistic words, aren't they, for very complicated things that happen. And I think that they're kind of words that we use to reduce things. Uh, as we've heard tonight, uh, crime and punishment are much more complicated uh, than the words suggest. And this is a story about uh, me being complicit in a punishment rather than a crime. So... I used to rehearse with a band in, in Borough, uh, and uh, one day I was going to rehearsal on a Sunday, uh, and I got to the station early, uh, because I'm always ridiculously early for things, because I'm paranoid that I'm going to be late, and I like being early, because it means that I can get myself together, I don't have to worry, because I'm there. I can't be late. Uh, so what I did uh, was I went over to the Starbucks uh, over the road from the 
this rehearsal studio that I was going to be rehearsing in and <clears throat> got myself a latte, like a, a good middle-class uh, white man, and uh, sat down to, to drink that latte. And uh, a, a, a gentleman came out of the, uh, the toilets. Um, and uh, this gentleman was kind of like scruffy looking, um, wasn't white, uh, and he, uh, he was kind of uh, in a distressed state. And I, I watched him, uh, I had my headphones on, because I don't like the world, uh, and, uh, and so I didn't hear what was happening, but I sort of saw him going over to this, this, this group of people, this, this father and, and mother and their, and their daughter, uh, and, uh, and, and sort of getting into a, an altercation with them, an angry altercation with them, uh, which resulted in, in, in the gentleman who'd come out of the, the toilets throwing a punch at, at, the, at, the, at the father of that group. Now, I sort of, I'm not a hero, I'm not very heroic at all, but I, I also sort of find myself in these situations sometimes where I do things that are vaguely heroic, but I don't, it's not heroic, it's just, I don't know, uh, a stupid situation that I get myself into, because heroism is not worth it. Um, but what I did was I sort of stood up and awkwardly thought, what am I going to do? How am I going to stop this, this fight that's going on? How am I going to uh, be a useful person in this situation? And uh, the, the, the fight didn't stay in the, in the, in the cafe. It uh, went out of the door. So they were, they were eventually fighting in the street. Um, and uh, I sort of got out into the street and the, the, uh, the, the father from the group who had not instigated this fight uh, was just about to smash uh, the, the, the kid's head against the, uh, the concrete, uh, as can happen in a fight. Um, and I sort of found myself jumping in and catching this, this young, young guy's head and stopping it from being smashed against the concrete. So I was pleased that that happened, and a, a proper man came by on a bike, a motorbike, and got off and actually defused the situation rather than just me sort of holding the head in a kind of, oh, shit, what am I going to do with this head kind of way. And, uh, and that, was, that, was, that was it. The, the, fight, the fight stopped. Um, I left my details in the, the Starbucks. I don't know why. I said, I'm going to be over the road in, in my rehearsal if you need me. And then I went. And then, yeah, they did need me. Uh, and I was called back over to the Starbucks, uh, to my whole band's great annoyance, to give a statement uh, to the police. Now, I didn't want to give a statement to the police, but there I was giving a statement to the police. Now, it's not that I'm against human beings who happen to be police officers. I'm not. Uh, but I am kind of against the system that those police officers work within. So, I mean, I'm not judging the police involved in this, but I'm not too keen on the criminal justice system. And this story pretty much is one of the reasons why. To, so I, first of all, give a statement to somebody who I discover in the middle of giving that statement is a special constable, and so none of this is a real statement. This is kind of a coached statement, because he, he was supplying me with lots of information about uh, the, 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 the guy who'd come out of, the, out, of the, out of the toilet. He was saying he's a dangerous person, he's dangerous in the area. He was kind of giving me a lot of negative propaganda about this guy. Now, I'd seen him throw a punch and start a fight, but I had not 
seen anything else of criminal uh, nature about him necessarily. And so I was kind of resistant to this, and, but the, the guy's sort of saying all of this stuff. I'm telling him, no, go back, change those words that you're writing down. That's not what I said, that sort of thing. Uh, but he's a nice special constable, and I'm having a quite a nice chat with him. And that's, you know, problematic in itself, I feel like, becoming cosy with uh, somebody who's taken a statement. So then I moved over to the, to the real policeman, and the real policeman... Uh, takes my, my statement. I, and before I give the statement, I say, you know, I won't have to go into court about this. And they're like, no, 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 no. There's no way you have to go into court. Uh, if you've given a statement, you don't have to go into court. This is just helping us out. I'm like, okay. So I, I give my statement. Uh, and another witness also gives their statement. Um, who, and, and, you know, that's, that's the end of that, I think. Then I get a phone call from the police and they say, uh, yeah, you do have to come into court and it is legally required for you to come into court. If you don't come into court, you are in trouble. So uh, I go into court and going into court is a nerve wracking situation in that they search you and all of that stuff as you're going in and it's kind of nerve wracking. Uh, and so I'm in the, the court in, in, in the borough area uh, and uh, that's when the, the the, the preconceptions of a court end after this sort of going through the barriers because after that a little old man kind of who's a, who's a friend of the court they're like volunteers uh, shows us up to this to this little room where the where we're going to wait uh, for to give to give our evidence in the court now in that little room is me the the gentleman who was assaulted the gentleman who was assaulted his wife and the witness uh, the other witness so we're all sat there able to completely talk about our separate stories get to know each other as human beings you know like worry about the you know I, I hear the wife go on a lot about how worried she was how scared she was how it was their daughter's graduation that day and they come into town so I've got all of this emotive stuff working on me there there's also <laughs> on the on the other side of the room is another group of people there to give evidence. Now they're they're there to give evidence about something that's happened in a in a hospital um, where, where and again it's it's again it's a similar situation. The witnesses were told they wouldn't have to give give evidence, and here they are having to give evidence, and they're frustrated about this. But we sort of watch them talk, and what happens over there is that they discover that the actual witness statement that they were given was a complete falsehood uh, that they that the police had handed in, and so that that trial was 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 null and void. It was, that ended. So we kind of watched uh, the justice system not working over the other side of the room before we went into court to help that justice system. And, and then, you know, I went into court to give a statement. And I'm trying to give a balanced, you know, statement that is what I saw and not, you know, emotively critical of any, any, any of the individual that was involved. Um, but the, 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 the lawyers are, are really aggressive at me, like accusing me of lying, right, a lot. And so that makes me get angrier and sort of more defensive and say everything much more strongly than I meant it to be, right? So I kind of get off that, that witness stand and I feel like I've been sort of forced to say somebody else's words. And I decide that I'm going to stay in the court case and hear the rest of it now, because I'm allowed to sit in for the rest of it. And I discovered that the gentleman who I gave evidence against uh, was someone who had mental health issues. He was a homeless man. Uh, he was a young homeless man, uh, I think 17 years old. Uh, he had had, like, terrible life and lots of struggles. And so, you know, I heard that and I thought, well, we if the justice system is just, that's a man who needs help. That's not a man who needs to go to jail. But no, the, he was sent to jail 
uh, and he was sent to jail, I think, for six weeks, I think, which is a long fucking time in jail if you're a homeless, mentally ill person. And that's on me. I am complicit. If I think that if, if I think about what crime was committed there, I see somebody, you know, losing their temper, and I see somebody else losing their temper back. It was the middle class father who nearly killed the homeless guy in that situation, but the middle class father was not on the stand being asked about that. And that's where the crime is for me. The crime is this system that did this to this individual because, and I am completely complicit in that crime. And since giving that evidence, since giving that witness statement, I tell you, it would have to be a really fucking bad crime that I witness now before I ever go anywhere near that criminal justice system. And I'm not condoning crime or violence, but I can't condone what happens after that violence, when it goes to court. Thanks very much. And I'm talking about some stuff that I've covered before, quite a way back on Getting Better Acquainted. And if you want to hear the story in an even longer form with more discussion around it, I'd suggest that you look in the archives for the episode with Jack and George, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. So the next thing you're going to hear is me doing a kind of talk at a benefit for Arts Emergency, who are an amazing organisation. You can find out more about Arts Emergency at www.arts-emergency.org. It was in the format of Geek Show Off. So at Geek Show Off, people are asked to talk about something that they have a passion for. And I decided to talk about tragedy, which is dear to my heart because of the organisation that I run, called Stand Up Tragedy. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show, but it's also a podcast, and you can hear loads and loads of amazing episodes over on that podcast stream. So if you don't subscribe to it, I suggest you do. It's at www.standuptragedy.co.uk, or you can search for us on iTunes or any podcast app that you like to use. When when you run a night called Stand Up Tragedy, you get some interesting reactions when you tell people about the night, you know, because I love tragedy. I love it. Everyone's like, tragedy, that's sad stuff and uh, depressing stuff and, and that's not fun. And I go, well, there's comedians as well. They go, oh, like, oh, so that's good. There's some good bits and some bad bits. Uh, no, uh, that is not how I, I think of tragedy. That's not what tragedy uh, is. Um, but that is what people think it is. So I have to deal with this, with this, with this uh, misinformation that's been going around about tragedy uh, for quite a long time. Uh, the thing about that misinformation is we all like tragedy, right? Everybody in this room likes something that's tragic, whether it's opera, uh, which is full of tragedy, whether it's The X Factor, which is also full of tragedy, whether it's EastEnders, which... Uh, and, you know, that we all like tragedy. We all... Reson- that tragedy resonates with us all. But when you tell you, you, you guys, when I tell people that you like tragedy, you don't believe me. Uh, and I think that that's because we've got a real kind of focus in society quite a lot on being positive, on this idea of positivity. You know, we get it through our adverts, we get it through self-help books, we get it everywhere we go. Look on the bright side, we say, smile, don't we, when we're we're harassing people in the street, we tell them to smile. Uh, And that's the thing. Uh, We, we, we aren't just uh, just positive people. There is so much more complexity to us. Uh, and why don't we look at it? Why don't we look at tragedy? I mean, 
we do. Like I say, we do. But why don't we think we look at it? Um, and yeah, I, I, I really think it is a social bias towards positivity, which is not helpful to look at reality. Uh, and the thing is, um, tragedy is self-help. So when I was uh, bad-mouthing self-help books, I'm not against self-help. I'm for helping ourselves, looking at ourselves and seeing what's reality. Tragedy will help you do that, will help you look at yourself. Uh, and tragedy will also uh, help you to be a community because tragedy was originally designed to be a communal experience that we would go through together. And at the end of that experience, you would experience catharsis, which is a collective outpouring of grief together, right? So that's what tragedy is. Uh, but it's not just tra that. That's not the only meaning of tragedy because words evolve, they change. So it's not just this classical concept of tragedy like defined by Aristotle or later on defined by Arthur Miller when people went, hey, you don't have to be a king. Uh, you can be a normal person to have a tragedy. Uh, it's also sad things. It just is sad things. When we say a tragedy now, we think just that's just a general word for sad things. And I think we should look at sad things. I basically think we should face the abyss together, which is what I kind of think arts emergency is all about, right? Because that's about saying, look, this is shit. This is real tragedy. What's happening in the arts is a tragedy. What's happening in society is a tragedy. Let's look at it and let's do something about it. Let's understand it. Um, and tragedy gives us tools to understand our culture. Uh, we can look at hubris, right? We can look at power. We can look at greed. We can look at jealousy. I mean, that is our political system. Uh, we, that, is how, that is what's going on there. We can look at it. We can understand why those things happen. And it, we can look at not just the wider society. We can look at ourselves, you know? What are tragedies that we experience? We experience death, uh, bereavement, uh, domestic violence, uh, desire, love mental health issues. We need to look at those things, not sweep them under the carpet, not pretend we don't have them. Uh, tragedy is a tool for everyone, and it's what a tool that everyone should have. Uh, and I think we need to not just hear about rich, famous people's tragedies, we need to hear about everybody's tragedies. Um, the, in fact, we need to hear from the people who've experienced the tragedy firsthand. And that's one of the things that Arts Emergency is trying to help us do, is trying to get people up to talk about their experience and share it with the world. Now, while I'm sharing a bit of my experience with the world, uh, I'm going to talk to you quickly now about another bit of misinformation that I feel very aggrieved about within tragedy, and that is uh, Oedipus, right? Because everybody knows Oedipus, right? Uh, the Oedipus complex, Freud, oh yes, we know that. Well, that's all about wanting to have sex with your mother, isn't it? And uh, you want to kill your, your father or your stepdad, if you're me. Um, and the thing is, like, that's what Freud, you know, famous white man Freud, last person to get this concept and talk about it, that's what he wants us all to remember. But that is not what the Oedipus myth originally was. The Oedipus myth was originally so much better. Um, so because not all Greek tragedies, or tragedy, in fact, any tragedy, ends in death. Uh, Oedipus didn't die, right? The original Oedipus story uh, goes like this. Oedipus's dad is told that his son is going to kill him. So to avoid his son killing him, he decides to leave his baby with cut feet on the street to die. Wow, now that's the start of a story, right? Uh, in trying to escape his destiny, he ends up fulfilling it, right? Uh, 
and, and we'll get to that bit where he fulfills it later. Um, Oedipus is found and given to different parents. Neither father or son know this has happened, right? The father doesn't know, the son doesn't know. Um, but then someone tells the king, uh, and uh, someone tells Oedipus as well, um, and he asks his, his ad adopted parents, uh, and his adopted parents lie to him, right? We are understanding some really great stuff about family dynamics. Oedipus is informed by the oracle that he's going to murder his father and marry his mother, right? And then he resolves to go as far away from his adopted parents, the parents he loves, the ones he doesn't want to kill. Uh, so he goes as far away from them as he can. He meets his father on a crossroads and he ends up killing him in an argument about who should cross first. How petty is Oedipus and how petty is his father? He solves the riddle of the Sphinx and in return he's married to the dead king's wife and is given a crown. He's ma he marries his mother straight away. That's the, that's the reward for solving the, the riddle of the Sphinx. Uh, in trying to escape his destiny, he ends up fulfilling it. But then the irony persists. He doesn't know that he killed his father, and he only discovers that he did that through investigating who killed him, right? Sometimes uh, the tragedy is living on, right? Because he's blinded when he finds out what happens. He doesn't die. Some of the stories, he, he blinds himself. Other stories, uh, he's blinded. But that And that is kind of how he, he ends. He ends knowing that he tried so hard to escape his de destiny, but he failed, and being blind but still living, right? Now that is a tragedy. That is a complex. If we're going to have a complex, that's an interesting complex that it doesn't kind of completely simplify reality and uh, spread a load of kind of noxious uh, stuff. Not that I'm anti-Freudian stuff or anything. I am a little bit. Uh, so, as Sophocles said, the keenest sorrow is to recognize ourselves as the sole cause of our adversities. Now, that is what Oedipus realized at the end of that story. Uh, and that is something that we do need to kind of look at ourselves and see ourselves and see how we're the cause of our own tragedies. But guess what? We're not the main causes of our tragedy. They are in, you know, the government. They are in society more widely. And that is what I think tragedy can help us see. Organizations like Arts Emergency have learned the lessons that tragedy can teach us about, about society. They're rooting out the fatal flaws and trying to rewrite the endings for us all. And we will be able to rewrite these things so much better if there are people in the writers' rooms with a, like a greater diversity of people. Uh, people who have insight into how tragedy is experienced, who aren't confused by oracles, who aren't blinded by the sword of privilege. It's the job of the art and the media to shine our light on tragedy and explore it and try to understand it. And that is why I'm very pleased to be here talking on behalf of Arts Emergency today. Thank you very much. Dave Pickering, ladies and gentlemen. I was very much taken by the phrase, the sword of privilege, which I might make my rapping name. And the thing that I'm going to leave you with is a piece that was recorded at Stand Up Tragedy. It was recorded on the last day of the Edinburgh Festival. 
the last stand-up tragedy show that we did and it involves me looking back at my experience of doing my solo show which incidentally is called what about the men mansplaining masculinity and you can see it live in London as part of a double bill of Stand Up Tragedy Presents which is happening on the 19th of November at the Dogstar in Brixton. It's pay what you like and uh, it's a double bill with a show called Howl of the Banty by AJ McKenna who's been on Getting Better Acquainted and does amazing spoken word stuff. You can find the show and the survey that I did for the show and blogs that I do about the show and the survey at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. I've been thinking a lot about uh, childhood traumas that I've experienced whilst I've been in Edinburgh this year, which may sound like a weird thing to be doing in the middle of a festival where there's all of these amazing things happening. Um, But I've been doing a solo show about those things. Um, And so when I was doing that solo show about those things, every day I was talking about, you know, some of the worst things that have happened to me. And I've been, you know, going out on the streets and trying to convince people to come in and see some of the worst things that have happened to me. You know, um, and I've been also in the nights running this night stand up tragedy. So I've been out on the streets saying to people, tragedy, would you like to see some tragedy? And nobody does want to see tragedy often because the word tragedy kind of makes them go, oh, no, I want to be happy tonight. I want to think about happy things. And I say there's some laughs as well as some tears. And sometimes there is. People do uh, make th- do things that make people laugh on this stage. Uh, but sometimes there's not. I mean, sometimes the comedians come with a really straight set and uh, an opportunity to not make people laugh and to actually make them cry. And, and when those moments happen, people might have uh, a hard time in here. We've heard some quite, quite uh, tough material in here, I think. When I've been thinking about childhood traumas and why I want to sort of talk about them and why I want to uh, do shows that look at things that are sad, and which are hard to look at and, and, and complicated. Um, I was thinking about, about my childhood, about my, the time when I was experiencing those traumas. And the thing is, I'm not going to talk about the traumas. You can relax about that now. I'm going to be talking about like, things around the traumas. So that's okay. But yeah, um, so when I've been thinking about my childhood, it's, it's like when I think about those moments, then I, I can think about this really dark childhood, this really sad childhood, this, really, this childhood filled with pain and abuse and things like that, right? But that wasn't all of my childhood. That wasn't all of that moment of my childhood. At the same time, there were other things happening, mundane things, you know? Like in life, you have mundane things, then terrible things, and also really happy things. I had like really happy things going on in my life, like my friendships and going to stay with my dad were really happy. My my family home was not a happy place, but going to stay with my dad was some of my best memories, some of the best moments of my life. And when I was experiencing that, I was in uh, the, the city of Coventry. Does anyone know the city of Coventry? Someone does, but not very many people. Coventry is a, a kind of complicated city in that it was bombed. It like, had loads and loads of uh, car manufacturing stuff in it. So when in the war, it was bombed uh, because that's where all of the manufacturing was. And they, they pretty much, you know, the, like, everyone knows the Blitz in London, but Coventry had a, a very serious Blitz. And when that happened, uh, the cathedral was bombed and it was, and it was destroyed. And the cathedral was kind of destroyed. And they took um, the, uh, the, 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 the posts that had fallen and charred and they made a sort of charred 
cross to remember that, and that's called the old cathedral. But one of the other things that happened from that bombing, from all of that turmoil, was that they made the new cathedral. And the new cathedral is this beautiful building with this beautiful bits of art in it. And it is not just a building, it is an instrument. Like, when they made that, that cathedral, they made it to be played. They made it to sound, to have this beautiful sound coming out of it. And so, in Coventry, when you go to see those two cathedrals, you see this old cathedral where dark things and destruction and misery and sadness happened. But you also see this new cathedral where new life and new growth and new things grew out of it. And for me, that is why I kind of feel like when I look back at my childhood, it's important to talk about the, da the dark things as well. Because when you talk about the dark things, the light grows out of them. It isn't just like a, a terrible, bleak place. And I have a lot of bleak places in my life. I, I kind of experience anxiety and depression and all of those things. But if I didn't experience the darkness, I think in some ways, I wouldn't really appreciate the light. Um, and I was talking about this with my friend, uh, Liz, who pr produces the show uh, today. And uh, we were sort of talking talking about traumas with a happy bunch at Stand Up Tragedy. And uh, she, uh, I sort of said about the two cathedrals and all of these things that I was feeling and why it was frustrating to me that people didn't want to come in and, 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 and talk about uh, dark things because we've all got them and it makes us feel less alone when we share them. It makes us understand that, shit, I had that shit and so does someone else. And that's how it's been in my solo show, incidentally. Like, people who've come have been like, wow, that, that reminded me of stuff that happened in my life. When they cry in my solo show, uh, they didn't cry uh, for, for, for my story. They cried for their stories. But the act of crying when you allow yourself to do it, when you do it freely, can be a very cathartic experience. And so, yeah, when I told Liz about all of that stuff, she said, Star Trek five. And I, okay. <laughs> and, 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 and she said, and she said, well, you know, there's a quote from Kirk and she, she misquoted it at the time, so I won't embarrass her uh, now, but we looked it up on the internet. Um, and, uh, and, and, in, and in Star Trek V, Kirk says, uh, pain and guilt can't be taken away with the ways, wave of a magic wand. They're the thing that we carry with us, the things that make us who we are. And if we lose them, we lose ourselves, right? And I think that's, that's it for me. The pain, the sad things are what made me who I am. And when I share those with other people, they're talking, they, they feel the things that made them who they are. And it's not nice and it's not, and it's not happy. But from looking at who we are and embracing ourselves and, 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 and at the beginning of the night, the first set was about not loving yourself. And I find it hard to love myself. And one of the things that helps me to love myself, and I occasionally get those moments of loving myself now, I, I occasionally get them. And what allows me to have those moments is having looked at those traumas, having thought about them, having dealt with them, you know, and that is why I make this show, and that is why I've been making this solo show in Edinburgh, and that is why I've been thinking all the way through the Edinburgh Festival this year about sad, traumatic events that happened to me, and I am bloody glad that I have done that. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for listening to my ramble at the end of the fringe about what I'm thinking about. Um, how, how are we doing for time? Do we have time for me to do my song? Yes, we do. You can find Getting Better Acquainted at www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can find Getting Better Acquainted anywhere that podcasts go to hang out on the internet. So iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all of those places, Getting Better Acquainted is there. 
If you'd like to donate and help me to make Getting Better Acquainted and Stand Up Tragedy and all of the things that I do, I have donate PayPal buttons both on the Stand Up Tragedy website and on my solo show website, www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.